So ordinarily, I select a topic uh, for the summer series that relates to my former profession or some interesting life experience. When Ricky sent out Glenda's list of topics, I saw listed, how do we account of evil? So I wrote Ricky and asked, should it be how do we account of evil or for evil? Ricky sent my email on to Glenda, who quickly responded with the correction that it should be for evil. And Ricky responded, sounds like you're interested in this topic. I'll put you down for it. So I'm thinking, where do I start on such a big topic? First thing I did was Google evil. I got 606 million hits in seven-tenths of a second. I don't have enough time on the planet to go down that rabbit hole. So I did the next best thing. I procrastinated. <laughs> after all, I wasn't supposed to speak until August 20th. Then, after Brenda broke her wrist, I swapped dates with her. The pressure was on. The universe works in strange ways, however. I take long morning walks, and I bring my iPhone and listen to my NPR One app. One day I saw a program on Radio Lab called Revising the Fault Line. It sounded interesting, so I listened, and there it is. A discussion not on evil, but on the relationship between the brain and our behavior. After listening to that, I'm off and running. More on that episode later. I'm also a big fan of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, which, is, as most of you know, is a morning uh, humor show, news and humor show. In one part of the program, panelists are asked trivia questions. One question went like along these lines. An author has suggested a way to make every book a success, every novel a success. What was the suggestion? The answer was make the second sentence of every novel, and then the murders began. <laughs> one of the panelists piped up, quoting Genesis, in the beginning. And, of course, that elicited some humor because, and then the murders began. Okay. The irony is that even without the sentence, the concept is true. In chapter 1, God creates heaven and earth. And in chapter 2, Cain kills Abel. So now I'm reading Genesis and reading how God created Adam and Eve. Put them in the Garden of Eden with a specific instruction that you can eat from any tree except from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We all know what happens next. Along comes Satan in the form of a snake and tells Eve, hey, it's okay to, uh, to eat from the tree of good and evil, because when you do, you will, you will be like gods, knowing good and evil. Well, we all know how that turned out. This got me thinking about how those of us raised in Judeo-Christian traditions are exposed to the concept of evil as something separate from us, a snake, Satan. Evil is objectified. There's a duality. God is good. Satan or the devil is bad. For a long time, without giving it much thought, I believe that evil was this thing a power or a force separate from me, whether described as Satan or the devil or something else, it was a thing. Even if you're not familiar with the Bible, 
Most of us know the story of Job. Here was a guy successful, upright, and moral. He was the Bill Gates of his time. He had large flocks, acres of successful crops, a family. Everyone would envy for their good looks and success. One day, Satan appears before God in heaven. God boasts to Satan about Job's goodness, Job's goodness. But Satan argues that Job is good only because God has blessed him abundantly. Satan challenges God that if given permission to punish the man, Job will turn against God and curse him. God allows Satan to torment Job to test this bold claim, but he forbids Satan to take Job's life in the process. In the course of a day, Job loses his flocks, his crops die, his sons and daughters are killed. In spite of all his losses, Job stands with God. While Job, his wife, and three of his close buddies are having serious theological discussions about the nature of God, God and Satan are just messing with Job and playing a game on him. Now, I don't intend here to get into a discussion of the meaning of, of the book of Job, but to show how the Bible sets up good and evil as two diametrically opposed ideas, and that evil in the form of Satan is a separate object. In the end, Job does not curse God. God gives him twice as much wealth as he had before. In 1998, Denzel Washington made a movie called Fallen. <clears throat> the movie starts with the Washington character, a police detective, witnessing the execution of a convicted serial killer. As Washington investigates what he thinks are copycat killers, he learns that the executed killer was possessed of an evil force, which by simple touch he could pass to others. Once this tangible force of evil inhabited another person, they too committed evil crimes. I like the movie. Kind of reinforced my belief as evil as a separate object from me. Christians, however, have this awful conundrum in accounting for evil. Their argument about how do we account for evil generally goes like this. If God is all-powerful, if he is all-beneficent, if, all, if he is omnipotent, then why does he allow evil in the world? And when those having this discussion talk of evil, they talk of two types of evil. Evil deeds committed by people and natural evil, uh, like earthquakes and tsunamis and Ebola, things like that. For those who seek a reason to reject the existence of God, the syllogism goes like this. If God is all-powerful, yet he allows evil, he must not be all-powerful. If God is able to prevent evil, but he does not, then he must be malevolent or worse. He does not exist. This field of discussion has a name, theodicy. Theodicy is an attempt to answer the question why a good, all-powerful God permits evil. It provides a framework where God's existence is plausible. It seeks to show there is no contradiction between the existence of God and of evil. A theodicy seeks to show that it is reasonable to believe in God despite the evidence of evil. My reading and research for this sermon led me to a 10-hour lecture series by Pastor Clay Jones of Biola University, a fundamentalist Christian college in Los Angeles. 
The series is titled, Why God Allows Evil. I know what you're thinking. Did he listen to 10 hours of a fundamentalist minister? The answer is no. I listened to two hours. If I had hair, I would have pulled it all out. <laughs> the lack of a clear line of reasoning was mind-boggling. Biblical quotes interspersed with personal stories and with unsupported statements was more than I could bear. But in spite of that, the, the, the fundamentalist position on why God, God allows evil, according to Jones, is something like this. God allows evil because it is a greater good to allow evil than for him to do away with free will. In the philosophy of theodicy, this is known as the free will defense. Yes, there is evil, but it's not God's fault. God created mankind and gave us free will, and it is our choice to do good or evil. Of course, this line of reasoning does not account for natural evil that I mentioned earlier. I was wrapping up my last draft of, of this when my doorbell rang on Wednesday. An impeccably dressed older African-American couple was out the door. at the door. They were Jehovah's Witnesses. In my old age, I no longer sternly say I'm not interested and shut the door. And Debbie's been warning me about this. <laughs> I listen politely, I engage in conversation, and I try to explain my faith. This time I told them how I was working on a sermon on evil. After some discussion, the man gave me a tract explaining Jehovah's Witnesses' position on evil. And in the tract, it says, quote, citing uh, the book of John, the evil one controls the whole world. So I had one more source to talk about evil. These religious arguments to me are just irreconcilable. It is like arguing about how many angels can we fit on the end of a pin. If you believe in God, how could you possibly know his nature? Then there, there, are, there are the determinists, those people who say there's no free will and everything is preordained by God. How many times have you heard in hard times, it's God's will? Free will, no free will, God allows evil, the evil one is in charge. I felt like a squirrel trying to cross a busy street. I knew I could not continue to believe that evil was some separate object from me. A religious liberal in me could not question the existence of God and still believe in the devil. The conservative lawyer in me questioned the role of personal responsibility. If we can claim the devil made me do it, how do we take responsibility for our own actions? The question, if God is omnipotent, how does he allow evil, is the wrong question. So it's back to the drawing board. How do we account for evil? Let's look at a couple more question, pictures. Is that a picture of evil? How about this? Is that a picture of evil? How about that? Could any one of our pictures be up there? I have a survey question. I'd like everyone to close their eyes and just raise your hands to answer. I'm asking you to close your eyes because I don't want peer pressure to influence you. How many of you ever in your life 
have been so angry at a situation or at a person that you thought, I want to kill, I want to hurt. Just raise your hand. Okay, good. I'm not the only one. Here's my story. When Patty was diagnosed with cancer, we accumulated thousands of dollars in medical bills. But we owned a policy of health insurance. For six months, the bills weren't paid. Repeated calls to the company led to lame replies like, we're reviewing the bills. Finally, after six months, I got a one-paragraph letter from the company underwriter, which said he had obtained a medical report showing that Patty had an undisclosed pre-existing condition. Your policy is terminated. We're returning your premiums. That underwriter became the focus of all my anger, my powerlessness, my helplessness, and I fantasized about shooting him. It was not a fleeting thought. I would lie in bed, plotting out my revenge. Now, of course, I didn't. Is Debbie still here? <laughs> I did what I, knew, I, what, I, what I knew best, which was to read the contract, find the so-called report, file an appeal with the company, and a complaint with the Indiana Insurance Department, and ultimately, I prevailed. Why didn't I follow through on my fantasy? And why didn't those of you who had those thoughts? Why do some commit heinous acts and others not? I think I'm on pretty solid ground when I say that you use generally are rational and scientifically oriented people. On any particular topic, we would accept the scientific rational explanation over mystery and myth. So this brings me to the scientists. I want to talk about three. The first is Phil Zimbardo, and he's a psychologist and pro professor emeritus at Stanford University. He's best known for, uh, as the leader of the 1971 Stanford prison experiment and later as an expert at the Abu Ghraib trials. And if anybody wants to know about the Stanford prison experiment, just nudge one of our psychologists. I'm sure they know what that is. Um, his book, The Lucifer Effect, explores the nature of evil. He gave a great TED Talk on the psychology of evil. Abu Ghraib, if you recall, uh, was a prison camp in Iraq where Army Reservist MPs tortured and humiliated POWs. In his TED Talk, Zimbardo questions how ordinary people from ordinary walks of life could commit heinous acts. Zimbardo defines evil as an exercise of power to intentionally harm others physically and psychologically and to destroy people mentally. He evaluates factors which would lead ordinary folks to do evil, the disposition of the person, what's inside them, the uh, the, what are the circumstances, what's the situation that's occurring, and what's the system that overall is guiding the conduct. In this case, it was the military system. He says that the military demanded information and looked the other way as to how that information was obtained. Violence, he says, is a, is a disease. In case you need a more concrete example of these factors, talk to anyone who's been through military basic training. The second scientist is Gary Slutkin, 
Now, Slutkin is an epidemiologist. He spent 10 years in Africa studying the spread of infectious diseases. Slutkin theory theorized that violence is a disease, much like uh, uh, Zimbardo, and that violence can be treated like a disease. He started a successful nonprofit program called Cure Violence, which approached violence in an entirely new way, as a contagious disease that can be stopped using the same health strategies employed to fight epidemics. The third scientist is Robert Sapolsky. I heard him speak at the NPR Radio Lab uh, uh, episode called Revising the Fault Line. Sapolsky is a neuroscientist, a professor of biology and neurology and neurological sciences and neurosurgery at Stanford University. He's the winner of a MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant and the author of numerous books. I'm giving you his creds because when you hear his theories, he's going to sound like somebody who just came in from Venus. But this, this, he, has, he has an amazing uh, uh, background. His most recent book is called Behavior, The Biology of Humans at Our Best and Worst. And I haven't gotten all the way through the book yet, but it is an amazing book. Sapolsky theorizes that there is no, yes, no free will. That all of our behaviors are chosen or predestined, not by God, but by our frontal cortex, our genetics, our hormones, and our environment. Our behavior, which he repeatedly talks about the frontal cortex, good bad or indifferent, is all biological. I am grossly simplifying his very, very weighty book because he also in emphasizes that context, the environment, is critical too. But he uses a couple of interesting analogies. Once we thought people who suffered from epileptic seizures were possessed from the of the devil. Now, of course, we know that it's a malfunction of the brain. Another one, before we knew about dyslexia, we thought that kids who could not read and comprehend were just plain lazy. Now we know that that is a malfunction of the brain. He states, free will is a biology we haven't learned yet. I think two sentences from his book best sum up his theory. Our worst behaviors ones we condemn and punish, are products of our biology. But don't forget that the same applies to our best behaviors. What is the implication for his theories of evil? He makes another analogy. If your car brakes malfunction and you have an accident, you don't arrest and punish your car. You bring it in for repair. Likewise, he thinks that we should not attach moral judgment to evil behavior, but the evildoer should be fixed. If we are to accept Sapolsky's theory, we must completely revise our way of thinking about good and evil, crime and punishment. One more quote, then I have to leave Sapolsky. The hope is that when it comes to dealing with humans whose behaviors are our worst and most damaging, words like evil and soul will be as irrelevant as when considering a car with faulty brakes. 
that they will be as rarely spoken in the courtroom as in an auto repair shop. Many who viscerally opposed, who are viscerally opposed to this view charge that it is dehumanizing to frame damaged humans as broken machines. That as a final crucial point, it is a lot more humane than demonizing and sermonizing them as sinners. Maybe in the not too distant future, those who commit evil deeds will not be sent to prison, but to a geneticist to have their, his or her DNA modified. Now, I haven't even spoken at all about natural evil, earthquakes, tsunamis, epidemics that kill thousands. I think that has a much easier explanation rooted in our UU principles. In Genesis, God gives humans dominion over all the animals of the earth. The fundamentalists pro proclaim that we are somehow superior and apart from the land and other creatures that, cohabit, that we cohabit with. But our UU seventh principle states that we are all part of an interdependent web of life. And sometimes the earth does things that harm us. The tectonic plates move, buildings fall, oceans move, and people die. Bacterial DNA mutates and becomes resistant to drugs and spread deadly disease. It's not evil. It's just a fact without moral value. Sapolsky challenges us to think the same way about the worst behavior in people. Alexander Solzhenitsyn in the Gulag Archipelago said, the line between good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Science confirms that we are all capable of immense good and immense evil. Zimbardo and Sapolsky both conclude that the same forces that can lead to evil can lead to heroic acts. As members of UUCL, we provide the place that is safe, supportive, and conducive to heroic action. So if we are to account for evil, there is one significant thing that we can do. To quote from Michael Jackson, start with the man in the mirror. So be it. <laughs>